Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Tobias Kuntz. He's the CEO and co-founder at Glassnostic. Tobias, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think, well, you've done a ton of really interesting stuff. And with Glassnostic, I'm actually really fascinated to learn more about that um, selfishly. But before we get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up in Germany, more specifically in the south in Bavaria, in Munich. Cool. Um, born and raised there, um, went on to study in Berlin. Cool. I actually did not study technology. I did um, study music, more okay, specifically classical music, uh, composition and conducting. That's fascinating. And yeah, um, to me, it's a straight line into tech. Um, as you know, you know, music, yeah. there's a lot of it's a lot of mathematical aspects to it uh, to some degree and um, went on to do cloud, you know, not sorry, not cloud, uh, went on to do sound synthesis. OK, um, and that was a straight shot from there into uh, the computer world. OK, I, I find it's interesting that I find like a lot of people in tech like were a musician still are a musician or heavily into music or all of those things yeah it's the abstract mindset right um it teaches you to form a mental landscape of what are you playing what are you composing what are you listening to even right and that's the same thing you do in programming sure right you need to visualize you know create a mental model of you know, the program you're creating, the code and, you know, the functionality that you're creating. Sure. Well, and I think too, just creating something out of nothing, right, is yes. so similar, right? It's fascinating. Absolutely. Um, very cool. So walk us through your career, getting your PhD, and then I want to dive into Glassnostic. Yeah. So as I mentioned on the sound synthesis side, digital sound synthesis side, there, when I did it, there was a lot of programming involved. Uh, we did this still at the university with this on, on old VAX computers. Okay. Um, so there was a little bit of programming to be learned in particular, um, you know, then coding in C and stuff like that. Then I started collaborating on an algorithmic composition software that actually came out of Stanford. And um, then ended up, you know, spending a year at Stanford, simply being a visiting scholar there. And um, then the decision was, do I, am I going to do a PhD in, back in Berlin or am I going to do this in Stanford? Um, ended up applying at Stanford and, um, you know, got accepted, right? Um, Very cool. And... Um, so ended up doing this here. I actually did not finish it because, you know, the sucking sound of Silicon Valley was pretty loud. 
um, <laughs> did a bunch of um, internships, <laughs> worked at Silicon Graphics um, in the, you know, when it was a crazy cool company um, on the, you know, worked on the O2 workstation. Um, That's cool. And <clears throat> in, again, digital media, audio stuff. Um, very exciting work. Uh, remember, there's a one demo to Skywalker Sound where we uh, were able to, you know, in real time transpose things um, in certain channels, keep other channels um, 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 constant, and that was a great um, effect, obviously. Um, so that was exciting work, and then got sucked when you know when the dot com boom happened, um, got sucked into internet startups and really have been in startup land ever since. Interesting. Okay. So walk us through coming up with the idea for Glasnostic and what exactly is it? Yeah, really good question. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so Glasnostic is my second company, right? The first okay. company, I was a co-founder, the technical co-founder of a platform as a service. Okay. Um, Technology, um, think of this as a Heroku, but behind the firewall. Um, oh, that was acquired, but Red Hat became OpenShift ultimately. Um, oh, cool. And yeah, so um, spent a couple of years on that side looking at how do you optimally support the building of applications, you know, support the developer. Essentially, you write your code, we're going to run it with all the enterprise abilities built in, with all platform um, abilities built in. And, but then notice that, you know, who's writing these simple applications anymore? And back then those used to be like two tier, maybe three tier applications. Um, this is clearly before microservices, but it already became um, apparent that these little two tier deployments um, really were a part of a much larger application landscape. So there was a much larger architecture around it in the abstractions in of the platform as a service that we built didn't really address that. And it became clear that the interplay between these application pieces ultimately are the important thing to manage. And that's exactly what we do at Glasnostic. Because what people do in cloud production today still um, is something goes wrong, something happens in production. What do you need to do? What, what do you do? You go back, you analyze it, and you, then you go back and you change code, or maybe you right. change configuration. You change something statically because that's what we what we um, grew up and what we learned to do. Right? Sure, yeah, <laughs> we totally. Know to go, right? So something doesn't quite behave right. Um, <clears throat> so you go back, you fix your code, you redeploy it, and you hope that it's gone and you fixed it. So you release patches. And that's not only, that doesn't, you know, take a lot of time. And so on one hand, but it's also very un, unclear whether it's actually going to fix it. So what we do at Glasnostic is take almost an air traffic control approach to that problem. And we go in and fix things as they happen in production and simply by changing how the network works simply changing how applications and services and functions interact with each other in real time. Uh, okay. Interesting. Mm. No, totally fascinating to me because, okay, but like, how do you do that? Because 
like I understand, I very much understand the problem that you guys are solving, but how do you do that? Because we all know that you patch one thing, you know, you patch one thing, it breaks 30 other things, or you know, that's the running joke, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's everybody's experience. You deploy multiple times a day, and one out of two or one out of three times, something else breaks. Seemingly yeah. unrelated. You don't know, is it correlation? Is it causation? You have no idea. And you know what? Most of the time, it's not even worth finding out because the situation is different half an hour from now because something else gets deployed. Something else scales out right. or scales in, right? Um, yeah. It changes all the time. It's not just requirements that are changing. Runtime behaviors change. So <clears throat> we take the view that most of these runtime behaviors are not practically it's not practical to fix them in code. You just simply need to have a way to control them. And if you zoom out, that's exactly what air traffic control does, right? right. It's easy to, the, it's an airspace problem, right? Um, you, it's very easy to run 10 planes in an airspace. You can see each other, you can radio each other, it's not an issue. If you have hundreds, you need somebody that sees everything there can't be anything you don't see and then at a very high level make sure nobody affects each other unduly that's what we do the controller calls the pilot we change things on the wire got it okay mm -hmm. okay so let's well okay first off i guess does are you language agnostic then because you're so high level or or how does that work or how do you yes. actually connect into the code base we do not connect in the code base and it's extremely okay. important that we don't do that because in okay. most situations unless you're a small startup or you know you actually don't own everything it's not 100%. your code right, right? yeah you totally. depend on things you don't own things you don't even have the chance to change the code yeah. so we sit in the wire between applications and services and you know functions whatever and SaaS services sure and we'd simply change how much how many requests we allow how many requests we allow in parallel we shape the latency we um and we shape and calibrate bandwidth very high level like again the air traffic controller we don't care, is it a helicopter, is it a plane, is it whatever it is, a UFO, right? Um, sure. We simply tell the pilot, um, this is your position, go to this altitude, take this direction and fly at this speed. Right? That's the level of management that's required to run production successfully today. Sure. Well, especially big, big well, big companies, right? Because Absolutely. there's yeah. so much happening. Yeah. And if you're, well, and then I'm assuming even from a security perspective, you guys can handle if somebody's getting like trying to get hacked or you can like redirect traffic. Like, does that, can you do that kind of stuff? 100%. Yes. Yeah, okay. Security is one of the big aspects of what we're doing. Um, it's flow control. So it's a lot of, um, you know, it's data flow control we can act as a zero trust control plane um, don't even allow systems to talk 
So um, oh, wow. the entire attack vector before um, before the connection is accepted, we can interrupt that connection, right? Okay, so then how does a company actually integrate your technology into their platform then? So we are what network people like to call a bump in the wire. Okay. I always prefer calling this a brain in the wire because we're a little bit more smart than just a bump. <laughs> right. Um, so we insert ourselves in the data plane in modern speak. And how we do that is environment dependent. We are not a single technology company in that regard. We are not an EBPF okay. company, right? We are not a Kubernetes only company. We are essentially an SRE platform. And that works okay. in all major environments. And we simply inject ourselves into the network, into the data plane, in the, the data path, and then we can take control. We can calibrate, we can regulate, we can shape, we can deny, right? Right. So is it just a software play, a hardware software play, just a hardware play? It's just a software play. Okay. That's what I guessed, but yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So you're working with the company then to help, like, is it customized per company then? Or do you kind of have like a, here's generally what we do. And then people have like add-ons for lack of a better term for it, or how does that kind of work? The technology is agnostic. It's not specific to the company. Um, yeah. Every company has the every larger company has these issues, and they're they're essentially complexity issues. Yeah. And how we're being used though differs slightly from company to company, and there's a lot of cultural aspects to it. Right. How is the team organizations? How many business units are there? You know, um, all these things play a huge role. What are the sensitivities, the primary use cases? Is it more security focused? Is it more performance focused? Is it more cost management focused? Is it more reliability focused, right? These things determine how people use our product, but the product itself is very horizontal. Okay, interesting. So this might be a stupid question, but could mm -hmm. you use it for user testing then too, or like to see what features are popular or what pages are popular or what's not being used to, or like that kind of stuff or, or not really? We can show this at a very high level. Keep in mind, we are really much more like a radar screen in air okay. traffic control, okay. right? You don't see the full plane and how many people there are on the plane and what's happening there. You just see a dot on the screen. Okay. That right? So like we don't look into the workload because again, most of the time you don't own it. Right. Right. Um, okay. But we can show you how it's utilized. We can show you that a certain service gets overloaded. It right. gets okay. gets runs too hot. We can show you hotspots. These kind of things. Got it. Okay. So yeah. So in I guess yeah. Okay. Maybe user testing is a dumb way of putting it. But yeah, that's that's what I was getting at. That's interesting. Actually, yeah. that's really fascinating. But load testing, of course, right? And right. how do these components work together? What's the capacity relationship? Is there an impedance mismatch between those things? Those are the really thorny problems in operations. It's yeah. not, do I call the API correctly? That's something that you get during integration testing. But what is the load testing? Um, how does it behave when it hits a certain limit, right? And everything right. today in these architectures run in some form of degradation all the time. Right. Most of the time, you don't even notice nothing bad, you know, comes comes of it. 
Yeah. But every now and then something bad happens. There's an egress that you didn't, that shouldn't be there. Why is the system talking to this other system, right? Um, maybe misconfiguration, malicious, benign, doesn't, you don't know, but it's important that you detect these things rapidly. Um, or something gets overloaded and then it slows down and it's always non-linear chains of events, right? A little bit of slowness over there, maybe even a CPU issue, right? Turns into a latency issue on the next system and then turns into a retry storm and, and so forth, right? It's a cascading chains of events that if you don't take control of them, ultimately will cause a great deal of damage and be very disruptive. So sure. we take this out of the equation just by adding a modicum of control. Got it. Oh, and then, well, and then I could be monitoring, like if I have 30 different pieces of software, you can monitor all 30, right? From yes, kind of exactly. my dashboard. Yeah. Is that fair yeah. to say? Okay. Yeah. So, like, well, I have the interface up in front of me right now, but I'm mm -hmm. curious, how would you describe it? Because there's, it, it's very cool what you're showing people mm -hmm. with, with your interface. So how, how would you describe it without a visual? <laughs> I keep coming back to the radar screen. Everybody mm -hmm. gets access to our product, mostly and almost 100% through the visualization piece, right? which is essentially an auto-generated service map. Okay. Um, if you can't see what is run, running, you don't know what's going on. Right. And in particular, since we focus on the behavior, the aggregate behavior of services, not the threat of execution, right? We're not looking at the tracing of things. We're looking right. at how do systems behave? How do components behave? And um, that is the first step to understanding. And understanding is always the first step to doing something about it, right? Whether it's your own runbook, it's your own operational skills, your SRE skills, whatever it is. Um, then our customers discover that some of these skills are much better applied through our product or right. even automatically applied, right? There's a learning curve behind it. It's a novel way of doing SRE. Right. It's essentially how we feel SRE should be done. Um, but um, it takes a week or two. Yeah. yeah, but that's not that long, especially with how complicated the stuff that you're, what you're doing is really complex. So if you only have to learn it in a week or two, that doesn't seem like a long period of time at all. It's yeah, and ultimately you you grow with a product sure. over time, right? You start, uh, what do we see, do, you know, coming, coming back to the, um to the thought from earlier um do companies use it differently yes absolutely they try to achieve their goals and some people for instance uh, teams realize at some point oh we can actually do by exerting back pressure we can do a whole lot of things now that were much more complex wow. before and then they do back pressure essentially for a few weeks and then discover oh, we can also quarantine new deployments, which is uh, just a different variation of the same idea by adding control to the um, uh, to, um, to system behaviors. Right? Totally. So there's a learning yeah. evolution behind it, right? Yeah. Sure. So is the product web-based then? So there's two parts to the product. Um, one, I mean, call it the data plane. 
where that's the piece that gets kind of deployed in people's VPCs, if you will, on right. premises, the, you know, the new, uh, the new on-prem, yeah. um, <laughs> or even on-premises, you know, um, as well. And the control plane is something that is delivered as a SaaS, right? So that's simply right. consumed. Um, and most of the time, uh, through glasnostic.com. Got it. Okay. So then how does obviously the working remote factor into all this? Did you have to modify some stuff? Did it really matter or, or walk us through that? Because obviously you potentially have people like in the office and mm. then not in the office, wherever, right? Yeah. So it technically it didn't affect us because okay. our data path piece always runs in your VPC, in your cloud environment, in your on-premise environment, in your edge locations, um, whether people work from home or not. Right. Okay. That's but, kind of what I figured. Okay. Yeah. But there's a but. but okay. People working from home really accelerated complexity in companies' environments. Right. So that is a big driver for um, our uptake. Sure. Because we thrive on complexity, ultimately. Sure. Yeah. Okay, fascinating. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious then, like, it. so how, well, I guess how long roughly does it take to actually implement into my company because it sounds like I could probably get started pretty quick and then kind of gear up as as I learn more and choose more and more to do or, or how long roughly does it take to get going that's exactly how it works so everything we do with every customer is always we start in a small environment in okay. the first environment we install there let's say the first VPC right um, the first Kubernetes cluster and then it's the the experience is always, you know, wow! Now the light switch has been turned on, right? right. And then the next teams look at you know looks at that and says, oh, we want to have this too. So now we run right. in two clusters or two VPCs or twenty, right? Um, so it's an expanding um, um, uh, motion. And the the initial deployment it re it depends a little bit on how standardized the environment is. Kubernetes sure. cluster, literally, it's a 30-second install. Oh, wow. Um, okay. In VMware, it may take a couple minutes. Um, if you have something on-premises and there's weird firewall rules, that may take half a day, right? Right. But the install, our, our install itself, it's always doable, I think, within 5 or 15 minutes. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so really quick, and people can get started. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious to dive a little bit deeper, like how do you manage your roadmap compared to feature requests? Because you probably get a, that all the time, or is it not really because you're, you're so high level? Um, most of our feature requests are integration based and automation okay. oriented. Oh, so yeah, the automation stuff. Interesting. More okay, automation, easier, easier automation. Um, applying some of these remediating or preventive patterns, um, you know, control primitives more automatically is a huge topic always. And that's that's almost 100% what we're working on these days. Because ultimately, um, when you run a complex environment, uh, cloud production, um, 
you don't want to sit in front of a, nobody wants to sit in front of a console all the time right so you right. want to get notified quickly you want to be able to set up preventive um um uh, uh control primitives um so certain certain um issues can't even um you know, arise in the first place you want to set up auto micro segmentation which we already do um these kind of things make it just much more um much more valuable in uh, smaller team contexts right not the large right. enterprises which have ops groups anyways but the more the SRE automation mindset you know, around it, um, that's really what we're focusing on these days. Sure, that makes sense. Nobody wants like the thousand notifications. They want the like one notification that they really need to deal with something, right? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And um, that's really where we can shine because if you, if you imagine, right, as developers, we used to put printfs in our code, right? Yep, totally. <laughs> now we still do the same thing. It's just better stuff these days. It's like now we have uh, an, an intelligent monitor in there. We have a um, we have observability in there. But ultimately, the alerting is always coming from a deep, you know, from a very finely grained metric. And um, if something happens that's large scale and a little bit nonlinear, as we talked about earlier, right? Yeah. You get hundreds of events because all these metrics start to trigger all of a sudden. Yeah. And now your teams jump on these alerts because, and then they do what they know to know how to do. They don't do what they should be doing necessarily. They know what they think um, it is. Right. So now you have a whole lot of like headless chicken mode in your organization going on. Right. Where's this? What we do is look at what's what really matters, right? And what really yeah. matters is like how does a system behave? What's the outward behavior? And you know, very simple thought experiment, even like um, if you notice that between two systems, um, two components, two services, your requests keep you know creeping up, and all of a sudden latency shoots up out of proportion that's a telltale sign that you're degrading now on the upstream that your 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 service component is actually running below peak performance because it's hitting all kinds of internal limits and we detect this very easily we can even validate this at runtime by just pushing back against the request for a little bit see does latency recover little inline experiment within 10 seconds right and then we have confidence that yes that's the case now we can throw an alert that hey your scaling doesn't work here there's oh. an issue uh, your peak performance is your your past peak performance every single time for a few minutes before you uh, scale out and these kind of degradations are triggers for outages right well and that would be very hard to test just from a developer perspective without you can't. Yeah. yeah well yeah exactly yeah okay yeah, fair you enough <laughs> you can't it's a better you way can't to put because it, yeah. it's it, yeah. it depends on the exact exact situation in production right now and it's going to be different five minutes from now right yeah fair okay fascinating no that's that's really interesting and cool actually that you guys do that we're the only ones doing that in the industry as far as i can tell sure yeah well i guess well and it's well i think the whole thing what you guys are doing is like pretty complex but you simple 
you simplify it for enterprise. Is that fair to say? Yes, we just add a critical function that's that's really missing from data centers or from virtual data centers, from VPCs, right? And that is, I like to compare this with, you know, a kindergarten. Right, okay. What happens, we deploy today, we deploy our software, like, just like if you would put 20 kids, 50 kids in a room and tell them to now, you know, occupy themselves. And you know exactly what happens. Within <laughs> 10 seconds, your noise level is at like 200 decibel and um, blood and tears are going to yeah. flow, right? Yeah. Um, because the kindergarten teacher is missing. There's right. this management function missing where the teacher says, here, Jill, you go on this table, you play with Dave over there, and now you 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 use this toy, and in five minutes, this other kid get, gets it, and so forth. It's a capacity um, management um, task in in essence right it's a management cap um, capability that's missing and we bring this back to the deployment no very cool but but i want to get your thoughts and advice on obviously you've been involved with a lot of really kind of stuff that a lot of people use every every day and and whatnot and i'm, I'm curious to get your advice and what do you because you mentioned before we were chatting about like growth mindset and kind of why it matters and i think I would say maybe COVID kind of shifted that a little bit, or or what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, so I think most a common pattern that I see people fall into, and mostly, you know, obviously I deal with software engineers, right? I deal with sure, SMEs, yeah. DevOps people, and. Um, it's like taking the world as granted, meaning I don't have any influence on the world. I need to adapt to the world. And that's true to some extent, right? Of course, um, yeah. um, there are forces that are larger than you are. But what people tend to forget is that um, um, not only do we change all the time because our experiences shape us, we can shape to a large, much larger deal than we think is possible. We can shape our surroundings. We can do something about it, right? And yeah. I feel um, too many engineers, too many, you know, SREs um, feel not confident enough to learn quickly to change the status quo and to pursue a goal actively, if that sure. makes sense. Right? Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. I, I would yeah. used to put myself in that category perfectly, so I totally get that. Yeah, I think that's I mean, there's somebody, yeah, there's somebody on the team, um, let's say, you know, oh, has a computer science degree from Berkeley or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, then that's regarded, or coming from Google, Sure. And so you don't you don't dare to speak up um, because oh that's the better credential. The credential doesn't really matter. What matters is what you do. Sure. Even a smart person is not smart because they are smart, right? It's about what do they do with that smartness and the learned behavior. How do they apply it and when do they apply it, right? And to what effect? 
So that's, I think, the perspective that's often um, undervalued, I think. No, I think that's actually really good advice and insightful. But I'm curious, what advice do you give to people to get over that, though? Because it's really hard to change that mindset and decide that, like, yes, I want to make this change. And it's also really scary. Yeah. Um, I'm not a psychologist. Sure, sure, <laughs> I sure. think it um, it gets scarier if you attach your ego to it. Yeah, if good. whatever you want to do, you think it's you and your your perception of self worth um, hinges on the outcome of that action. I think it's way more important to simply do get shit done in French um, and then reflect back on it. And yes, of course, you're not going to reach everything. You're not going to be perfect every single time. You know, you're not going to reach the goal you wanted to reach, but you miss it only by a little bit. And then you can look back on it and you've already learned. And by putting yourself out there, by doing something, you've actually already changed your reality you have right. changed the world your immediate surroundings at least right so i think that experience is important um i think something that mark Andreessen said many years years ago in some interview it doesn't matter right is that you know strong beliefs um briefly held that has a little bit of that ring right where totally. yes I'm going to do this. I'm going to put myself out there. I'm going to, you know, execute on that. And it may be wrong five minutes later and that's fine. Right. I can be a different person five minutes later. Yeah. Right. Interesting. I also think too, just people are still so scared to, to like fail at something, but sure. Well, your idea fails and you have to do something else or you pivot or whatever. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Like, I just never understood why that mattered. Like who cares? Right. Like, but, so many people get so and maybe it's the ego thing like i i look back at my career like how i don't even remember all the times i failed it's been so many times and like i'm not saying like catastrophic they're all the time but like sometimes it's just like oh, okay that didn't work out next right or it's okay yeah. i gotta like regroup and i gotta maybe like go find a job for a while or whatever right yeah yeah i think it's self-worth it's your self-worth is attached to the outcome of the task right and as opposed to attaching it to the uh, to this the smartness and the dedication and you know all the other niceties of you executing that task sure hmm. interesting yeah no i i 100 agree it's it's fascinating i'm curious then what advice do you give to entrepreneurs or even developers because I've been in this space a long time, you as well. I feel almost bad for people that are just getting started because it's so complex now compared to, you know, even five, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, there's so much software. There's so many frameworks. There's so many technologies, right? It's it's a, totally. it's a Cambrian explosion, really. Um, I don't have good advice other, I think kind of linked to what I just said is like you start somewhere. Sure. 
you know, starting somewhere, I think the best learning is always by working on a project. Yeah, by yeah. just doing things. Try to reach a certain goal, try to implement something in a new language. That's how you learn a language. I've never learned anything different um, in a different way. Right? No, I actually think that's really mm -hmm. good advice. And I think there's so, obviously there's a ton of paid resources out there, but mm -hmm. there's so much good free stuff out there, whether it's YouTube or other sites, right? And I think so many people forget about that. They're just like, well, I don't have the money for that. It's like, YouTube is free. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You know, it, like there's not really an excuse, I think, these days in a lot of cases, if you really want to learn something. Sure, I get that not everything you can find on whatever. But if you're trying to learn something new in a new language, you could probably find something that you're interested in in that language that you can find a tutorial on it, whether it's video or not. Right. Yeah. And I think it's you're absolutely right. It's like the resources are all there i mean from youtube you can do online classes and from mit you can stanford has online classes right totally. all that stuff is there there's way more you can watch in your way uh, um, in your lifetime sure um but so the other aspect there is that you iterate really really quickly if you want to learn you know new domain learn something in the first hour then revise how do you see the whole field connected to your existing knowledge, right? Um, map it out as quickly as you can. So you can judge whether a certain resource, a YouTube video that takes you 15 minutes to watch is actually the right thing to do, right? Is it worth it, you know, going deep on this side now? Or is it, um, should I instead just watch four or five high level things that help me map out, uh, map out the whole space? Like these kind of techniques are really, really important. I think it's essentially it's a lean startup uh, for for your own knowledge, right? That that's an interesting way of putting it. And yeah, I agree with you. It's yeah, like I, I don't know. I I guess it's fascinating to me. And I, I I would assume. Well, I'm curious. Do every year then, or every few months, whatever it doesn't really matter. Do you try to pick something new? to learn or or how do you kind of stay current with what's happening and and how like basically what what's next or what's coming i wish i wish i had the time to pick sure. new um new stuff no i'm running a startup and um it's every day you okay. spend 80 percent of your time doing things you are not an expert in um, yeah. You haven't done before, at least in this, you know, particular shade of gray or whatever. Yeah. Um, so as a startup founder, you're con continuously dealing with being outside of your comfort zone. Sure. Um, so that's that's your learning essentially. Actually, I'm not even sure I would call it learning per se, because you don't <laughs> maybe don't get back to a certain thing for another two months. Right? Okay. <laughs> so you need to relearn it again. <laughs> it's, it's a, yeah, you, you got to do what you got to do all the time. Yeah, that's fair. But then how are, or like, how, I guess, how when you don't know something and you need to figure something out, what tools or resources do you use to actually figure those out? Like, are you go to like other people to try to find it online? Like, where do you get that kind of like, okay, I don't know this. Where do you go first? 
Yes, and I think that's a superpower that most people don't, in particular developers, don't don't build early enough, and that's your network. If I have something I can't figure out or feel I should figure out in more detail faster, I can call up people. Right. I pick up the phone, um, have a two, three, four minute discussion, conversation with somebody who's done it before. Right. right? Um, it's, it, that's absolutely necessary. Yes, you can read articles. Yes, you can read, um, do Google research. Um, but you'll find very quickly that it's actually not a good use of your time because it right. takes you a lot of time to find the right resources. It's yes, you can search, but then you, an hour later, you still haven't found a good answer, right? Um, versus somebody who knows you, somebody you know, um, so vice versa, um, already has a lot of context where you're coming from, what your situation is, uh, the company situation at the time, um, how they did this with other customers before and so forth, right? Super sure. valuable. So the value of network is immense. Any advice? And by the way, in engineering, the same thing. So in engineering, the same thing, right? Um, you today, going back to the Cambrian explosion, you need to, as a developer, you need to do so many things. You yep. are not an expert in whatever, let's say you do something gRPC. Uh, you haven't done this before, or like very briefly. If you know somebody you can call up who knows how to do that, you can ask a very specific question. Sure. Um, and that's what good engineers do. They don't know how to write a file system, but if they need something about file systems, they know who to call. <laughs> yeah, no, I actually think that's really good advice. And it's surprising how many people don't leverage that network, especially if they have it. But do you have advice for actually building that network? Because it's challenging, especially when you're first getting started. Yeah. And it's so funny because as kids, we have no issues doing that, right? Totally, yeah. Uh, we, we, like we make friends all the time. Yeah. We can talk about all kinds of things. That's how kids learn, by talking yeah. about random stuff at school. Not yep. necessarily in the lessons, but on the on, during the breaks, right? Yep. Um, yeah, it's you know, it's the water cooler things, it's having common interests with other people and then talk about technical matters. Um, it's, I think it needs to be casual. Yeah, that's right? a good advice. Yeah. Interesting. Very cool. But we're kind of coming to the end of the show. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about Glassnostic, any other links you want to mention? And uh, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, always glasnostic.com. So it's G-L-A-S-N-O-S-T-I-C.com. It's like Glasnost and Perestroika, if you're old enough to remember, right? <laughs> um, Glasnost really meaning transparency. That was, you know, what Gorbachev pushed in Russia. Um, glasnostic.com and everything's there. My DMs are open at, you know, on Twitter if you want to reach out or otherwise I'm just Tobias at glasnostic.com as well on email. Perfect, Tobias. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time and your day to be on the show, and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Absolutely. Thanks, Kevin. It was a pleasure being on the show. Thank you. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening. 
please visit our website at buildingthefutureshow.com to join the free community, sign up for our newsletter, or to sponsor the show. The music is done by Electric Mantra. You can check him out at electricmantra.com and keep building the future.